Thank you for downloading this episode of Trainees Conversations in Law with me, your host, Hobbs Decoe. In this episode, I talk to Tara Sherbrooke, the GC at YouGov, about her career path from private practice to in-house. So I suppose if we start with the first question then, you started out with a, a sort of scientific degree under your belt. Was it always the intention to, to move into law or, or was this something that you stumbled into? Um, well, I'm not sure that I stumbled into it, but it certainly wasn't my intention when I was applying for university to become a lawyer. Um, I was very lucky because of the way that I was brought up. Uh, education has always been paramount to my parents. And so I was encouraged to study for the sake of study for an interest. And I, I loved uh, science as I was growing up. I'm just really fascinated about how things work. And in pathology, you study the disease by looking at what happens when something goes wrong you can figure out how to fix it. So that, to me, occurs as a transferable skill. I would argue with anyone, I mean, that's part of one of the reasons perhaps I am meant to be a lawyer, but I'd argue that law is actually a science and not an art subject. I know it's classified as as an art subject at university because it's effectively a framework of rules with a bunch of exceptions. You have a series of hypotheses about, you know, what commercially would be possible if you took different approaches, uh, what regulatory block would be if you take path one, and what commercial you know, driver would be impacted by path two. You, know, you also make hypotheses about the style of negotiation with different clients and different counterparties. You know, how is it going to work and how is it not going to work? And then you test those hypotheses. So I have always stood, stood firmly that, that law is a science. So I didn't really see it necessarily as a dramatic change. In fact, when I did my conversion and I was applying for training contracts, the firms were delighted. They were all looking for candidates that had something else. So it was quite an advantage at the time. I don't think it's quite so different now. I think people come into law from all sorts of backgrounds. But at the time, it was lauded and praised. So I definitely uh, took advantage of that. I suppose today with the implementation of the SQE, we're going to see a lot more different backgrounds for future lawyers. Uh, So potentially things like sciences and things which traditionally were, you know, avoided by by law students. It's going to become more commonplace. Were they avoided? I've always believed I've seen sort of my university days, there was very much a distinction between law students and science students. There wasn't any crossover between the two faculties. Maybe that's a disadvantage to both. I I agree with you in terms of there are scientific elements to studying law and to practicing law um, in terms of how you go about putting things together, solving problems. And I think that teaching them in isolation is is problematic. But I, I don't see how... How easy it is to change that with, uh, you know, law being as as ingrained as it is, it's, it becomes a much harder, harder thing to change. I don't know, Hobbs. I, um, I think you're probably right, <laughs> but I would still challenge you on it. That's part of my nature. I think go to university and learn how to th- go to school, go to university, learn how to think, learn how to think critically, go to law school and learn your profession, whether you do a law degree with your seven core subjects plus jurisprudence and the medieval 
of application of law in modern day something or other, which you're never yeah. going to practice, I argue, <laughs> or I assert now. And then everybody's really on the same path. It just happens that you took a different route to get to that, you know, to that training contract. And there's room for all sorts of different types of lawyers and all sorts of different backgrounds. And I would definitely hire somebody who could explain why they made their choices over somebody who came to me with a CV that was very shiny and you know, the, the sort of the well-trodden path, probably, you know, a law degree or a history law degree to a conversion to a, you know, well-known branded firm to a this, that and the other. I don't necessarily value only that. I'm sure they're an excellent candidate as well, but I don't think one way or the other gives you an advantage or a disadvantage, providing you can give the story as to why you made those choices or why you had to make those choices because life pushed you in a certain direction, but how you overcame the circumstances and made those choices, that's far more interesting to me. Um, And I think also shows the character of a candidate or the character of a potential hire, because what we do is difficult. And especially at the moment in this strange world we're living in, there are plenty of challenges that we face that are presented to us that we don't have control over or certainty about. And those overarching qualities of of resilience, you know, they don't necessarily come from treading the path that you're expected to tread. Perhaps uh, perhaps we should arrange a, a social between the science faculty and the law faculty or a debate. I don't know, because I think we all get so much value, um, you know, from diversity, from what we can learn from each other, from being curious. Um, we're going to get. We're going to talk about that later. I know, so I won't wrap it, wrap it on about it now. But I think there is value in learning from other people and other experiences. What's transferable, what works for them, could very well work work for us. So I prefer an inclusive approach rather than a faculty versus faculty approach. You started off there obviously saying what you look for in a candidate is the ability to to justify uh, the decisions they've made in in terms of their their education their career to date. Um, so if I was to turn that around onto you, then you did have a other than your science degree, you did have a fairly traditional route into law. You had a training contract followed by time spent as an associate. What then prompted you to to move out of that private practice and, and try your hand in-house? I think when I started in private practice, I assumed that I was there for life. I was going to be a partner by the time I was 35, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I was very, very lucky. I trained in an excellent firm with brilliant people and I had a really positive experience. But what I saw about private practice was I was often called in or the firm was called in in a time of crisis. And what I love about in-house is I'm called in at the beginning of a new product design. So I'm part of the team from day one and I can see something through from idea to launch rather than that sort of crisis management parachute in the very expensive private practice lawyers and Try not to talk to them too much because you know that they're charging you by the six minute (laughs) slot. It was a less fulfilling approach to business. I also felt that in private practice, although I got to do 
a lot of really high profile deals, a lot of really high value deals. I didn't really get to do all the aspects of the deal. So I, I remember being in private practice just before I moved in house and I sent an agreement out to the client for review and I said, please do complete the schedules of you know XYZ intellectual property um, and let me know if you have any comments or questions, blah, blah, blah. Very nice. That's what we always did in private practice. I turned up on my first day at um, Element 6, my first in-house move. And, you know, they were sort of exasperated. They had 45 hours of review to complete in order to be able to fill out this intellectual property schedule that some other external lawyer had sent them, just like I had done to somebody else. And it's that thing of understanding what you're asking for, why you're asking, what the business processes are to capture and monitor intellectual property. And not every business has that in place to be able to pull a report and just fill out the schedule. It was it was really eye-opening to how much private practice is sort of a little bit ivory tower. There's an academic excellence, there's the complex, there's the unique. When you're in-house, I mean, I've done things from reviewing you know NDAs to reviewing you know very very high value transactional documents I do the whole spectrum and I have to go away and manage getting the information to complete the IP schedules of what we own and what we don't own and what we're giving warranties and check can you give that warranty whereas in private practice there's a lot of sort of give the advice and step away I prefer rolling my sleeves up and uh, making sure that the results are as we want them to be in the commercial and they drive the business forward do you think that need of yours to be sort of in the mix, to, to see a project all the way through, an element of that that comes from your university degree in the sense that in science, you, you can't be your hypothesis, you test it, you, you know, um, rigorously go over everything and then produce your results, your report at the end. Do you think that's potentially where this comes from? Maybe that's the case, but I wonder if that's more about me as a person. I mean, before... I was a boss and before I was a lawyer, before I was in-house and before I was in private practice, before I went to university and law school, I was Tara. And when I was about four years old, I remember being shouted at because I had pulled apart an alarm clock, one of those little battery run alarm clocks, because I just wanted to know how it worked. And I'd left the pieces in a mess on the floor in the living room. And I've always been like that. I've always wanted to understand the why that really drives me as a human being and as an individual. I guess to put it back on on you and your peers, I think my advice would be have a little look at what it is that motivates you. What what excites you enough to get you out of bed in the morning and go for that area of law, go for that sector because every job's going to have frustrations, whether it's in-house or private practice. You're going to have to do stuff that is, is less in your sweet spot or more frustrating or deal with people that you don't want to have to deal with, as well as all of the fantastic individuals that you'll meet. You know, there's, there's always going to be both. So make sure that the higher purpose or the bigger thing. So for me, that's the why or you know, seeing something through from start to finish. Make sure that your job allows you to do that and in your training contract you know make sure that you get a chance to see different ways of expressing that commitment that you have that thing that excites you enough to get you out of bed in the morning and do you think then that 
in private practice, it's possible to find, as you put it, the why in, in a matter. Or do you think that's only findable in-house? I don't think life is ever quite so uh, one or the other. Um, mm. I, I, I think that if you as a lawyer, if I was a, a, a lawyer who was fired up by financial regulation or you know, competition law or something, being in private practice might be exactly where I want to be because you can, you know, scour over the regulations and lobby governments and do all sorts of things that that might really, that, that is not what fires me up, by the way, Hobbs. <laughs> I hasten to add. But, you know, if I really love competition law, then the place to be for me would be the Competition Markets Authority, no question, straight in there, asking the questions, making sure that people are doing things fair and in a way consistent with the regulations. I think that would be really interesting. It's not what wakes me up in the morning and certainly not what gets me out of bed. What I enjoy is uh, being part of the innovation, capturing the innovation, guiding it and implementing it so that for me, there's a real thrill of when, when a product is on a page to in a prototype to being tested and then being real and and then you can see the revenue stream coming in because it's something that the market chooses something that wasn't there before that was needed created something from nothing that for me is what gets me out of bed on these very cold february mornings the opportunity to be part of that so sort of your advice would be then that when you're looking at, at your legal career not necessarily just to go for what everybody else is going for, the traditional law degree, LPC, training contracts, associate partnership, but actually look at what you want, what you're interested in and finding a career that that suits that. I think that's a, a really lovely summary of it. And, you know, I remember applying for training contracts, newly qualified jobs, even though I was kept on at Norton Rose. You know, it's a very stressful time because there is such uncertainty and and you know the candidates are fantastic you, you know probably half the people you were at law school or did your PTDL with or whatever whatever route you took in and you will have met a lot of really interesting bright brilliant people all of everyone's looking for the same thing you know that job that's going to be fulfilling and interesting and and help them with their personal and professional development and into you know training and becoming a, a lawyer i think knowing yourself is critical at any stage of, of your uh, career and application for jobs because there's a lot of pressure that comes particularly at the trainee sort of stage I think maybe it's because you're younger and less experienced perhaps in the world of work if it's your first career perhaps not if you're coming to it as a second career but but there is this sort of this pressure this need to do well the feeling that it's a very competitive um environment and perhaps that prevents people from remembering that that it is actually a choice you are the commander of your ship you are driving your career you are driving your journey so knowing the direction you'd like to go in and trying for that even if maybe you have to take a step sideways to get there you maybe maybe it won't all be smooth sailing for everybody all the time but knowing what you want I think is 50% of the problem solved because you can always see, well, maybe this seat isn't my first choice, but I'm going to go into it for six months and learn 
everything I can possibly learn and get as much practice of hands-on drafting as possible because I know that it will be transferable when I get to do a seat in the thing that excites me or the thing that I think I really want to qualify into. Does that resonate? Yes, I think I think it does. There is there is an element that when you are starting out in a, in a legal career looking for legal work, you do sometimes have to take things which don't necessarily interest you. But it's seeing in that work that there, there are useful skills, there are useful learning points that will help you get to where, where you want to be in the end. And it's important to remember that when you're working in a team, and particularly, you know, my in-house team, we are lean small but perfectly formed, but you know, we're busy. I know that people don't always want to do everything that comes across their desk and there'll be you know, contracts or clients that they prefer to work with over others. And it's about being a little bit honest about that. Um, we have certain questions that come from certain jurisdictions that are always difficult. And we have a little joke in the team like, oh God, here we go, who's gonna take this one? Because it's always complicated. And Being open and honest about it as a team is another thing, you know, being open and honest with yourself or finding some friends or family or a mentor who who knows you, having the conversation like, what would suit me? Am I going for this big name private practice firm because I feel I should? Or is it really something that's going to match my strengths and bring out my best bits? And is it going to train through the things that I need training on and develop my weaknesses. You know, be really honest with yourself. And it's not always necessarily pretty. I have to talk to myself about some of the perfectly human reactions that I have to having to get some work done in unreasonable timeframes. And, you know, really all I want to do is go and spend the evening watching Netflix like my children are doing. But, but I can't always do that because I have to be grown up. And, you know, I'm allowed to say that because it's honest. I'd love to be watching Netflix, but I'm going to do my work because that's my accountability and I'm responsible. You know, it's very human. So so you mentioned there then there was an element in sort of of introspective reflection in choosing the path you choose, you know, whether or not you go for one of the top law firms or you look more in-house. Having had that experience of, of both choosing a law firm for a training contract and choosing a, a in-house team uh, to further your, your legal career, did you find that process similar in terms of selecting the company you want to work for? So do you mean the, when I appoint external advisors? No, so when you, when you set out uh, to, to move in-house, how did you select Element 6? Uh, there were many different companies that do that sort of work. How did you know that was the one to go for? As you become more senior, I was by this point specialised, I think it was about eight years, maybe more, I had been working as a commercial intellectual property lawyer. There is an element of opportunity because jobs become available or they don't. And I think as you become more senior in your career, I certainly found that I think when I moved to YouGov from ICE, one of the, the benchmarking reports about possible general counsel roles is that there's about 50 of those in the UK that become available a year. It's not common. So there's an element of luck. There's an element of opportunity, timing, circumstance. For me, I 
was at Osborne Clark. I had two quite young children. I think at the time I was working four days rather than five because they were tiny, tiny. And I got a call from a headhunter. And I think I probably was questioning where my career would go at Osborne Clark. I had been included in this development program that they put senior associates on who they thought would be suitable for partnership track. But making partner has changed over my career. I don't know what it takes now because I've been out of private practice for a while. But when I started my training contract, partnership was, you know, was this amazing thing that everybody wanted and it entail you know there was equity on the table and it happened you know in your uh, mid to late 30s and then as I did my training contract and I completed that and as I then practiced as a lawyer in a private practice firm I watched the partnership appointments becoming older and older and older and later and later and later and I suddenly sort of thought you know when is this going to happen for me and is this really what I want and I did that thing that I've just recommended to you and your peers or whoever's listening to this podcast, which is, you know, reassess, have a look. What is it that I really wanted? And I got a call from a headhunter, um, which offered me this role at Element 6. It was sole IP counsel, so there was a lot of autonomy. It was located a 15-minute cycle ride from my house, and I'm not ashamed to admit that that did factor in because it meant that I could be home to see my children who were very young before they went to sleep. And in private practice, very often I didn't get home until after they were already in bed. Those sort of factors. So it, it fit and gave me balance in my life at the right sort of time. Is there anything then that, that you miss or, or that you, you regret having now moved in-house and, and made your career there? Not at all. I, one of the questions you asked is, would you move back into private practice? And I, I mean, never say never. I won't ever kind of commit my future, but I am delighted. You know, I love my job. I'm very privileged that as a general counsel, I'm senior within the business. Um, I get included in the conversations that interest me at the level that interests me. In private practice, who knows whether I would have been partner or in a management committee or, you know, doing that sort of stuff. But I don't, I certainly don't have any regrets. I miss very much my PA. When I was at Morrison Forster, I had the best PA ever. Her name was Joanne. And I would really love to have somebody to help me with all of the admin and management and allow me to concentrate on the other side of things that I love, the strategy, the drafting, the negotiation, all of those sort of things. But otherwise, I can't think of anything that I miss in private practice. And I guess that sort of elephant in the room question, which is the, the salary point, I moved in house and I ended up earning because companies often have an attainable bonus structure. I ended up earning as much money as I would have earned in that first year as a salaried partner without having any of the business development obligations. Because of course, my clients all came to me. There was nowhere else for them to go. So they were a slightly captive market. At a time in my life when I needed to be at home because I had family commitments, I got to do both. I got to do really interesting work without those business development pressures. And I didn't sacrifice at the time the salary. Obviously, if you make partner in one of the big firms or maybe not even in one of the big firms, you're making a partner, you probably overtake the in-house salaries quite swiftly. But 
I didn't go into law to make money. I don't know about anyone else. I chose law because as a scientist, I like understanding how things work. I like the cerebral aspect, the cerebral part of the of the profession. And I still I make a good living and I don't need to make a lot of money. I think if I wanted to make a lot of money, if money was my motivator for working, I probably would have become a banker or a hedge fund manager or something else. So for me, it, it's not a regret. No. And do you think then sort of hypothetically, if that headhunter didn't give you a call, would you have moved out? Or do you think you'd still still be at you know, Morrison Forster or another another private practice firm? Gosh, good question. I expect that I would have started looking at some point. Mm. I think one of the things that I know that you want to touch on is diversity, equality and inclusion in the yep. legal profession, something that that is very important to me. As a working mum who was always raised being told that I could do anything and have everything and anything was available to me, doesn't matter what your your gender is, I didn't find that to be the truth or the not no one's to blame, just the practicalities of having a lot of responsibilities at home as as well as at work. I didn't find that easy. And I think probably in-house offers balance a little bit more. And I went on this training course when I was on the partnership tract, which said, why is it that lawyers are always seeking to perfect, whereas in industry, everybody's just delighted with it extraordinary. And actually, most of the time, they settle for good enough. And it was a really interesting kind of moment for me like a light bulb moment because all of my friends who are lawyers we're all quite a type and if if I got 98% in a test at school I would say well what what was the 2% that I missed rather than celebrating the 98% it's not normal when you get out of law firms and you get out of you know you don't hang out with lawyers all the time you find that most people if they got 98% in a test they would be, you know, throwing a party and celebrating. <laughs> but um, I think, yeah, I think I probably would have gone and moved because it suits my personality better. But maybe maybe not as immediately and it would have been a longer private practice career for you. Um, well, I was at the sweet spot in my, I was, I was really useful. <laughs> I, <laughs> I look at uh, candidates, now and I think god I'd just kill for you know six years eight years qualified because they are absolutely able to run with most things and know exactly what to escalate and when probably confident enough to make a few calls on their own and still junior enough to communicate those transparently to their boss so I know what's going on and that for me is the perfect perfect team member (laughs) But um, I, so I was in that sweet spot. If you ever look at in-house um, adverts for roles, they, they are always asking for that sort of level, but they often want in-house experience. So I was very lucky to have done a secondment in-house when I was doing my training contract that really shone through on my CV because I didn't have, you know, with my first move from private practice to in-house, I didn't really have much to substantiate 
applicable transferable experience to an in-house role and they were willing to take a bit of a punt on, on me and a bit of a risk because the interviews showed that, that I could work with my then boss and we got along well etc but yeah definitely I I can't tell you whether or not I would have been more proactive I think I had quite a lot going on in my life with you know pureeing butternut squash and trying to you know negotiate um massive European grants for partnership uh, research with universities and all at the same time so I didn't I probably wouldn't have been the sort of person to to move jobs proactively at that precise moment but all it takes I believe Hobbs and correct me if I'm wrong but you know if you're sort of in a bit of a day sleepwalking through all of your commitments it's very overwhelming with young kids trying to manage everything it's not until something sort of wakes you up there's always an event that interrupts your thought processes. And for me, it might have been that the headhunter called me and that sort of made me think, well, actually, what do I want? But it'll be something different for other people. You know, you look at the career development within your team for other people and you think, hang on a minute, you know, have they promoted people like me or are there people like me in the leadership team of, of this particular company? Is it the right place for me? It's a constant assessment. I mean, I feel like I've talked a lot about the time of my career where I moved in-house, about the impact of having family responsibilities as well as a drive for a fulfilling and you know interesting career at a high level. That There's a, a natural tension for a few years of your life. And so what you want may change. So it's very important to keep assessing yourself check back in are you happy are you fulfilled are you contributing in, in as much as you possibly can I don't know about you Hobbs but I believe that human beings are to a degree driven by a need to contribute by a need to be part of something bigger than themselves and so if I if I'm at a, a firm cruising along with doing something that's very very easy that's not going to hold my attention for very long so I don't know I think probably to sum it up, I needed to be interrupted because of where I was in my life. And the call from the headhunter was that interruption. But at this stage in my life, a call from a headhunter wouldn't encourage me to move because at the moment, the job that I'm doing is absolutely brilliant, fascinating and engaging. And I'm loving it. Now, we, we've sort of alluded to a couple of times in this episode to diversity and inclusion. And now that you are a, a GC, you have the decision-making power, as it were, to choose which law firms you work with. Do non-legal factors such as diversity and inclusion play a, a significant part in decision to contract out to a firm? So I have just established the first panel of external legal advisors at YouGov. And... The reason for a panel is because we want to form partnerships with our external advisors. I want to know that when I pick up the phone, I don't have to give them the background every time. We've developed, we're developing a relationship and we understand each other. They know what I think and how I work and the sort of scope of review, the type of review that, that I'm looking for. So this is the first external advisory panel that, that YouGov has had. I'm the first GC, so that won't surprise you. And I did it in a very structured way. We had a formal RFP. The kind of firms that we accepted responses from were all excellent. They're all names that you recognize. They all have excellent reputation. They're all 
doing good work, no question. And so one of the things that they all sort of replied to us with surprise about was how structured my requests were around diversity and inclusion. I work at a data company. Let's put this in perspective. I want to know the data around what you're doing. I'm not massively interested in how many network your member a member of as a firm I want to know who's reporting what now I appreciate there's all sorts of data protection issues around reporting a lot of this diversity um, data but I want to employ a law firm that can figure out a way of getting around that not just from a legal perspective and a technical perspective but also from a leadership perspective so this is a firm that culturally needs to value diversity and inclusion to the extent that the partners are talking about whether their parents went to university or not. Are they first generation, second generation? Why is it that you're reporting that you don't have a gender pay gap, but when we look at the bonus data, female employees across the board are receiving a significant percentage lower bonus? Is that something to do with your workflow? Is it transparent? Is it fair? Is one person in the team, possibly a guy, possibly not, getting all the really good deals? The data allows us to ask the questions and perhaps have some of the conversations that as a profession we haven't been having. So the RFP that I put together really drilled down into what are you asking your company to report to you and what are you doing with that information? It's interesting that a lot of firms refuse to have targets. They don't want to be held to a target. And they have lots and lots of loyally arguments about why targets are perhaps you know, disadvantageous and they can drive bad behavior because people are aiming for the target rather than the cultural change. And all of these wonderful, brilliant lawyers giving me brilliant arguments. And you know, my answer is just to, to, to the firms, like, what's your commitment? What's your aspiration? It doesn't need to be a target to bang yourself over the head with. But let's let's acknowledge as an industry that we are not massively diverse. We are not very inclusive and we potentially are not as um, as equal as we could be. And let's not focus on blaming or looking at targets to bang ourselves over the head with. Let's look at actions that are going to make a difference to everybody, to all the people who want to join the legal profession. Uh, regardless of where they went to school or didn't go to school, regardless of their route in, whether they did a science degree Hobbes or whether they did a more classical expected entry via history or law. It is really important to me. And so we made the firms substantiate what they're doing with data. And some firms pulled out of the process when they saw what they were going to be required to provide to us by way of data. And I I'm delighted about that as well, because I know that there are four or five firms out there in the market who had to have a conversation internally about why they weren't going to go for the RFP with YouGov, because there'll be a you know a woman in the room or there'll be a trainee in the room or there'll be somebody from a you know visible characteristic or not a visible characteristic of diverse uh, nature in the room when they were preparing or not preparing or deciding to do this pitch for the panel at YouGov. And they had to have a conversation about why they're not going for it. And I think that's just as valuable if everybody, can you imagine if everybody across the industry was having the conversation about their statistics, their data, their diversity, the cultural change would follow. 
because the conversation is what, what's important. No blame, have nothing but respect for the firms that are actively engaged in membership networks and genuinely believe that everybody I spoke to is committed to diversity and inclusion in some way, whether it's because it's something that socially interests them or whether it's because it's something that they can see a business value in, which the statistics, by the way, substantiate. You know, I don't I don't have a problem with why people want to do it. I just want to get more people engaged. I think that's how we will impact change and affect improvement in this area in the in the legal industry. Do you think then that more clients need to sort of include diversity and inclusion as a factor when choosing choosing work? Absolutely. I would encourage anybody who has any control over any budget whether it's a legal budget or whether it is your own personal choice and what brand of washing powder you buy, to have a look at accountability in a supply chain. We are not alone. If I insist that law firms behave in a way that is consistent with what I believe is the current social move for diversity and inclusion, then that accountability moves through the firm. People are allowed to be different. People don't have to be nervous about having conversations that maybe they were nervous about having before because they know that the clients have that expectation that there will be a diverse team, that there will be recruitment from more universities than just Oxbridge. And do you think that the the legal industry, it is getting better? Well, when are you comparing it to? What's your benchmark? Because, yes, I like to think that it is getting better. I'm a glass half full kind of person most of the time. Pandemic aside, um, <laughs> I do think it's getting better. I think there is only one direction it can move in because I think socially the tides have changed in such a way that you know it's bigger than just the legal profession. The conversation that, that we're, we're having at the moment is a global conversation. However, My question, I guess, back to you is, are we doing enough? Are we making sure that it's not sort of just lip service to the fashion? Are we making sure that this is not a fad, that this is actually something we're weaving into the fibre of the profession? And that's why it's not an accident that I ended up in a data company, but that's why the data is so important because it's, it's back to that clock I took apart, isn't it, when I was four years old? It gives you the why. It shows you how to make an hypothesis. If we recruit actively from universities other than the ones that usually have a good law recommendation, you know, law degree stats, I don't know what you call them, league tables, that's the word. If we actively go to career fairs in other places, will we get a more diverse group of candidates? And will those diverse candidates bring something to the table that we haven't had before? And does that enrich our table? I think it does. I suppose then that really this is this is a sort of a, a time will tell uh, matter. We have to see whether or not the the improvements in diversity and inclusion, whether or not they keep going, whether or not the data, as you say, keeps showing that law firms and every other industry are continuing to make steps to to make things more inclusive. And it, it is a matter of watching this space and making sure in the meantime that we as individuals are doing as much as possible to, to support that, both in our professional careers and our personal lives. 
absolutely. And again, don't fall for the target approach only. Like when I say I love the data, I love I love understanding the why, but the qualitative story is as important. Being able to marry that quantitative assessment with the qualitative you know how does it feel to work in a private practice law firm now compared to when I was a trainee I don't know I'm not there but I know that I can make sure that my team have a certain experience of the workplace as a manager as a boss as a leader in the profession that's the other thing that I can do make sure that the people who I impact and train have a safe space to be able to say this works or this doesn't work when they, you know, either they'll take my job when I, when I retire or they'll move into fantastic other opportunities in the profession. We're all in this together and they will take with them that sense of fairness and diversity and inclusion that we have, that they expect from our team. So it becomes the normal rather than it being something that we need to change. So I think your original point was, you know, only time will tell. What I put back to you is you're absolutely right. We'll only know if we've met our targets and, you know, won the war. But every single day is part of the journey and the journey matters. So it's those micro aggressions that maintain a horrible workplace have you heard I don't know if you've done some unconscious bias training or some diversity training but they talk about these microaggressions it's not really an intention but it's a little thing that somebody says that causes a small upset but it's ignored because it's only little if we can develop team environments where those things are picked up and they're called on and people communicate their experiences freely then that becomes the norm and those microaggressions are just evolved out. I think that there are, there are big wins and small wins. I don't think you can look at it as just achieving those ultimate aims where the data shows that the legal profession is diverse and inclusive. I think it's also about yours and my and my team and your peers' everyday experience of getting up every morning and wanting to get out of bed, not just because we're excited about what we do, but we're also excited and happy and fulfilled by the people who we share that experience with. I think that that's a, a really a good note to to end today's episode on. Before we go, there is a question I'd like to ask all of my guests. Then, if you were starting out your your legal career today, what would you be looking for in in a law firm or or in house? It's a fantastic question because I'm coming to it with years and years of confidence that I've built over time, which I certainly didn't have when I was applying for my training contract. I was absolutely convinced that all of the other candidates would have so many more qualifications than I did. I mean, they, they hadn't done a strange science degree. So I was convinced that I would be you know, seen as this odd wild card applicant. So it was very difficult to think about, to put myself back in those shoes. I think Taking aside my changed sort of confidence and the fact that I've grown up a little bit, I hope, since then, I think what's really, really important is looking for people you can learn from. Everybody has a different management style. 
teams have a different approach. Where will you fit? Where will the chemistry work for you? So that on those days when you're doing something that isn't very interesting, or on those days when there's a, a challenge or a crisis, you can still learn and develop through that because you know that the people who are you know, giving you that training, giving you that experience, giving you that feedback are people that you can listen to. Um, and I think, you know, remember you spend, especially as trainees and juniors, in you spend a lot of time working. I mean, I know we're not all in the office at the moment, but the office environment isn't just a professional environment. It's somewhere where I certainly developed personally as well. And working with people I respect, that I have common values, common goals, a common approach to my professional career, etc. That's really important. Um, I guess it comes back to what we talked about earlier. Take a good look and get to know yourself. And that will make all of these questions much, much easier to answer. answer uh, I don't think it's particularly good advice because of course getting to know yourself takes time 
and uh, the data will only tell us if we've made it a little bit later in the journey, right, Hobbs? Yes, yes, exactly. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Tara. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. It's been lovely to speak to you too. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thanks so much for listening to this edition of Conversation in Law. If you'd like to support me and the show, please rate it five stars on the iTunes store and follow the show on your podcast app. If you'd like more information about this episode and any other episode, then take a look at the trainee blog on the AccuTrainee website. That's www.accutrainee.com. Thank you for listening.